Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Now, we want to prepare for what's to come in the world uh, with FICA Sebesma. We are very pleased to have you here, CEO of Royal DSM with more than 20,000 employees, a company uh, with more than $10 billion of market capitalization. Uh, FICA, you have outlets all across the world. Correct. And I want to ask you about one place in particular. That's China. Can you give us a sense, given that you oversee operations on the ground in one of the most uh, questionable areas where people don't have a sense of what's actually going on with the economy? What's your perspective? I, I just wanted to tell what what is Royal DSM. Tell us about okay. the company. Uh, thank you for having me here. I'm indeed Feike Sibisma, CEO of Royal DSM, founded in the Netherlands, operating worldwide, more than 250 locations in all continents in the world being the biggest in nutritional ingredients in the world. So people who eat sometimes, and many people do, have a 25% chance that they eat our ingredients every single day. I eat. Um, please continue to do so, including our ingredients. But also materials, materials for solar panels, for second-generation biofuels, new energies, so sustainability. So sustainability and nutrition are two core areas which we deliver to our customers globally. Okay, so now now China. And China. Um, I think there's many elements in China. Second largest economy of the world, still smaller than the U.S., but running up more than 5 6% annual growth. Is that bad? Should we be concerned? I don't think at all. Uh, the fundamentals, wait, wait. I will come back on that. There is a, <laughs> there is a point. I agree with you. I agree with you. I, but please interrupt me as much as possible. But uh, it is not only positive, but the fundamentals are not bad. I mean, there is a middle class, there is urbanization, there's new people every single day coming on the market who'd never purchased before. And once they move from the rural area to the domestic area, they do purchase. So the fundamentals in China is not bad. Two million people coming from universities, a big need, 6% growth. But ask me your question about the concerns, because you seem to be concerned or not. Well, I mean, just the fact that they're financing it all with the fastest pace of uh, debt creation that no, everybody has seen in the world. I mean, this is um, a tremendous concern for people in my world. I focus on uh, yes and no. Uh, state debt deficit, pretty low still, one of the lowest in the world. But I agree with you. The deficit on companies is huge, and many companies are state-owned, and it's not counted as state deficit. So there you have a point. But also deficits in provinces and lower government levels is pretty huge, and even the big thing is unclear to everybody how big the deficit is. For me, a bigger underlying issue is where is the growth coming from in China? And the growth is coming from investments. The growth is coming less and less from exports, and the growth is not coming yet enough from domestic consumption. And there are three very clear reasons why the people save money in China and do not consume. And that is because their concerns about education, their concerns about the healthcare, their concerns about pensions uh, later on. They sound and just like Americans. No, not at all. You know, well, aren't we, Americans? They're concerned about their pensions. They're concerned about their healthcare, and they're concerned about education. You are totally right. However. Having said so, 
You know the average spend of the dollar earned of the average American? It's a little bit over the dollar. And the average spend of the dollar earned in China is around 60 cents. The average spend in Europe is around 80 cents of the dollar earned. So the Chinese uh, are one of the biggest savers in the world. So maybe they're concerned about the same issues as the Europeans or the Americans, uh, but they save much more money for those occasions in pension, health care, and education. Well, they have to also because there is no safety net that has really been in place uh, like the one that exists in many European countries and also uh, in the United States. And I want to turn, if you can, to Europe and tell us, you think that uh, there's going to be another country that will vote on leaving the European Union? Obviously, we had Brexit in June the 23rd. Italy exit. About. Uh, yes, maybe. Italy. They have a referendum coming up in December. What's your thought and what do you think will Europe look like a year from now? Please, no, please. Uh, we need to have a strong Europe. It's the only way. I mean, how about split- just a strong Belgium? Maybe get them to get their government together, right? Yeah, I mean- yeah. A united Belgium would already be uh, a great step forward. Uh, now, breaking up even the European treaty with Canada almost as a part of Belgium. But um, I think what we need in Europe uh, is not a split of Europe in 27 pieces. That's the way we started. That's not the direction we should go to. So we need to be united to form uh, an economic power block um, compared with the U.S., compared with China, compared with India, compared with what it looked like in Brazil. Um, So that is what, what we need. But my big concern is if I look to maybe also the elections here in the country, if I look to the elections and the Brexit in European countries, is, is are our leaders, and maybe not only the political leaders, but also uh, leaders of businesses or institutions, are our leaders still trusted by the voters? Are the leaders still trusted um, by the people they represent? Um, and that is, I think, a concern. And the British people were just angry and they voted. And I think maybe they did not vote so much for stepping out the European Union, but they voted for being very angry and felt to be left alone. And that is a concern and broader than in Europe or the United States. Well, and to that question, you were saying, you know, do the voters trust the politicians and the corporate leaders? I think that in a lot of corners, the answer is no. Uh, so what do the politicians and the corporate leaders such as yourself do to engender more trust? To do where you stand for and to define where you stand for. As a company, should I only make money? Should I take care? My shareholders become as rich as possible, as fast as possible. Is that the only thing I stand for? Please, no. I have a broader purpose to serve. I, of course, should take care of my shareholders. But I should take care of my own people. I should take care of my customers. I should take care of society as a whole. We have a big influence in the world in terms of nutrition or in terms of climate change. And I see that as a priority, as a goal for our company. And I hope that other companies do it too. Because that's the concern of the people, like you said, about their pensions, about their future, about the climate. And if you yield more on your investments and a few percentage more, and investing in the wrong things, which kills our climate later on, will cost our citizens later on much, much more money. So that's the way we should run our countries, our companies, and that's the way I try to do with ESM. I want to thank you very much for spending time with us. Fika Sebesma, he is the Chief Executive Chairman of Royal DSM. 
This is Bloomberg. with someone about what the implications are about this latest election season. I really don't have a sense of that. But you know who does, Pim? Michael Zizis. I was going to say, Michael Zizis. He knows everything about this. Chief Municipal Strategist and he's ready for Morgan you right Stanley. Now. And he's here with us. Michael, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on. Very flattering. <laughs> so I was reading your, your latest note, and uh, you seem to believe that we'll not get some kind of definitive uh, results, such as uh, a president that's a Democrat, as well as Congress that's Democratic, but that they'll be sort of split the difference and that there'll only be incremental changes. But even so, you said that even that would create uh, a risk to tax policies for sectors like financials and commercial real estate. Can you explain that? Yeah, well, to the extent that there's overlap between um, what Hillary Clinton would like to do in her policy proposals and House Republicans, and we think the House is very likely to stay Republican, uh, there is some overlap on the tax reform side, particularly on the corporate reform side. Uh, around repatriation, and in particular around the idea of using some of that money to fund infrastructure spending. So I mean, the devil's really in the details as to how you execute that, of course. But uh, just from a political standpoint, uh, if there is a path of least resistance for any policy proposal on either side at this point, that's pro- this is probably the area where there's maximum overlap. Michael, I'm wondering if we could just kind of ground ourselves in a little uh, sort of yield uh, so that we understand you know, what you're actually getting as an investor uh, if you're, let's say, buying triple tax-free munis. State of California, 1.97%. Uh, New York, 1.80%. Florida, wait, Florida's different, 1.84%. Just give us a little idea of sort of what the landscape looks like right now. Yeah, well, yields are, are obviously near all-time lows at this point, uh, and that seems to be the story every subsequent year. Uh, I think that story is sort of uh, divorced from uh, what you get out of fixed income as a, as a sort of mix of your entire asset allocation. And we, we've been arguing anyway that the macroeconomic environment is such that uh, lower for longer yield, that the yield level itself isn't necessarily what you're supposed to be uh, pointing to, but a macroeconomic environment of low inflation and slow growth is pretty good for owning fixed income, pretty good for owning U.S. dollars and United fixed income in particular. And because of the tax advantages of munis, uh, that's still a core part of your asset allocation. And uh, not just owning short munis, but kind of owning uh, longer duration munis paired with short munis to have a, a, a relatively even barbell across the curve to take advantage of that macroeconomic environment. And so, uh, you know, how this pertains to the election, obviously, is to the extent that major tax reform comes in, um, is there something in the cards that either lowers the value of tax-exempt income because tax brackets are going lower, like under Donald Trump's plan, uh, and from either side, the idea that they might eliminate uh, or at least reduce uh, tax exclusions and preference items, like the fact that you don't have to pay interest on your muni debt, uh, that is implicitly a feature of both plans, the way we judge it. Uh, at this point, though, because of the divided uh, government scenario that we talked about earlier, uh, we argue the odds are still against that. Well, given that, but given that it seems like 
I mean, I'm, I'm trying to imagine what you're saying. No, in other words, uh, if there is some sort of uh, reduced taxes, then it will actually uh, reduce the allure of tax-exempt bonds because you can get income uh, and it, from other places that won't be taxed as much. Um, is that correct? Yeah, that's, okay. a, that's, a, that's the right way to think about it. So if think about if you want to, hopefully I don't get too specific on it, but if you have uh, $1,000 of tax-exempt income right now, uh, you're in, and you're in the 35% tax bracket, uh, you're basically shielded from $350 of tax. If you if tax rates were to go down and you fell into the 28% bracket, you're only shielded from $280 of tax. So the value of that tax shield goes down, and therefore the value of the bond. One, one thing, you, you, know, you seem rather unfazed about uh, the sort of political season and, and, and the hysteria that some people have worked themselves up into. But one thing that perhaps is more realistic, certainly for these municipalities, is the pension burden. Um, how much do you look at the fact that pensions are climbing and the pension deficits are climbing as uh, income goes down in this yield, low-yield environment? You know, this is a this is a really important part of our investment philosophy around munis. Uh, state and local governments, we think, have historically been kind of the less cyclical part of the muni market, and have become uh, since the financial crisis the more cyclical part of the muni market. Uh, in no small way, do the pension issue that you're talking about. State revenue growth is really kind of flat at this point. And the claims on those in- incoming dollars are just getting bigger from the capital side, whether it be physical capital with uh, uh, deferred spending on roads and bridges and schools uh, or the underfunded liabilities that you're talking about. And uh, it's a situation where there aren't any easy legal um, uh, fixes to this and where, uh, you know, over the long term, uh, you're likely to hit a crisis point. And frankly, the market's not really compensating you in most areas to uh, to deal with this. So we think it's a very easy sector uh, to underweight, and um, uh, and we really would prefer being in enterprise sectors as a consequence: transportation, water, sewer, utilities, and the like. Hey, Michael, I wonder if you could just tell us a question that you would like answered from a a top economic advisor to the Trump campaign, because coming up, we're going to be speaking with Anthony Scaramucci, uh, who has been advising the Trump campaign on economic policy. Yeah, um, you know, I'd say the question that we get the most from clients on the Trump tax policy is uh, how do they... um, uh, how do they lower the business tax rate to 15%, uh, but also eliminate the carried interest loophole? Um, and and the, the reason we get that question a lot is because for asset managers, the question is, are they going to be worse off or better off under that? Because obviously they enjoy carried interest. But um, if he's also offering a 15% corporate rate, are they actually somehow better off under that scenario, even though he's been touting the idea that, that eliminating carried interest is a uh, is something that would hurt the asset management crowd. Good question. All right. Thank you. Yeah, because we're going to be speaking with, as I said, Anthony Scaramucci, uh, but he also is, of course, the founder of uh, Skybridge Capital, and he's got a new book out called, uh, I think it's, uh, what, Hopping Over the Rabbit Hole. Now let's turn our attention to the world of politics and money. 
Our guest is Anthony Scaramucci. He is the founder of Skybridge Capital, helping to manage more than $12 billion of customer assets. He is also the author of his, this is his third book. It is entitled Hopping Over the Rabbit Hole, How Entrepreneurs Turn Failure into Success. Anthony, thank you very much for coming in and spending time with us. Tim, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Let's begin by talking just a second about hopping over the rabbit hole. Do you feel like you kind of hopped over the rabbit hole I, during the selection season and the new well, book all I, coming I, together? I, I I can't speak for the election until after it's over. If uh, if the outcome comes out the way I think is going to come out, then I've hopped over it. Uh, but I think all of us in some ways and the American electorate in general has fallen into the rabbit hole a little bit because at the end of the day, our politics is becoming too personal. It's becoming too emotionally charged in an ad hominem way. And we've got to discuss the policies and the issues way more than we're currently doing. And that's going to be way more beneficial to the American people. So um, just to stick with your book for, for one second, what's been your biggest failure? Well, I got so many of them. I, I mean, I, I, I can add them. The biggest failure was my near-death experience with Skybridge, which is the whole genesis of the book. We went from a $450 million of assets under management to $200 million. And we were on our way out of business. And so we had to literally adapt and pivot and redesign the business. And frankly, if I wasn't successful or we weren't successful in buying Citibank's alternative investment management company, I'm not sure if Skybridge could have survived. So that would be failure big time, number one. I did fail the bar exam twice. I know my mom is listening, so I took it the third time to eventually pass it here in New York State. That was due to intellectual arrogance. I wasn't studying enough for the exam as a younger man. Uh, I got fired from Goldman Sachs in 1991. Uh, We could blame it on structural layoffs, but the truth of the matter is I stunk at the job of being an investment banker. Um, So those are a few big failures, but I've got a ton more. Well, you know, I just want to quickly ask – how does it affect you to hear when people like Jamie Dimon uh, or Warren Buffett come out mm-hmm. against Donald Trump, yeah. including his economic plans? Well, listen, I mean, these guys, look, I have an enormous amount of respect for them in business, but I think they're missing something about what's going on in the American public right now. And so what has happened, and we have to all be very careful of this because of where we live and who we interact with. We got to be, it's a very dangerous circle of elitism. We've got to be super careful because the working class that used to be an aspirational working class is now becoming the working poor. And the middle class is shrinking while the rest of us are sitting in salons talking to each other about how great everything is. And so I think that's a real big fallacy. And you can see that in the Bernie Sanders supporters. And you can see that in the Donald J. Trump supporters. And so I love Jamie Dimon. I have an enormous amount of respect for him. Uh, the uh, big corporate CEOs like the status quo. They like the predictability of that. But if we're not careful in our society and we don't figure out a way to solve the problems for the working poor and for the middle class, you're going to see a massive disruption in the society. This is a minor tremor what's gone on in the 2016 election. The biggest risk, and frankly, I'll speak very candidly if you don't mind me being a little bit political here, is that you end up with a charismatic, good-looking socialist that comes in and totally subverts and disrupts the American society. And so for me, I think that uh, I respect uh, uh, Warren Buffett. I respect Jamie Dimon. They also have boards that they represent in their publicly traded companies, and I understand where they're coming from. But I do think that neither of them have been to a Donald Trump rally. And my guess is neither of them have been to a Bernie Sanders rally. And if you go there, you can feel the quiet desperation that's in the United States that we have to fix. 
I want to turn your attention to investments because it's not often that I get to talk to you about where the money really is going. And you've got to follow the money. Someone comes to you, let's say they want to open a new account. Maybe they got uh, a 10, they tell you that they have a 10 year horizon mm-hmm. and they, uh, they don't want run of the mill plain vanilla because they can get that anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Tell, uh, tell people a little bit about your strategy and about where you'd be looking right now. Well, the number one thing that we have to do in our business is uh, mental conditioning because everybody is a long term investor until they have short term losses. And that's typically what happens. So, the losses come in short term, they set their hair on fire, and they want to change their strategy. And so what I tell people about Skybridge, you should have a stock and bond portfolio, pretty much plain vanilla, but 5 to $0.15 cents of your portfolio should be in products like what we offer. Now, what is that? We have a hedge fund business where we're actually taking your money and we're allocating it to a group of hedge funds. In our portfolio now, it's about 30 funds. The funds are designed to give you a non-correlated absolute return over a market cycle that is above bonds. And so I don't even know if I'm allowed to talk about my performance or not, so I won't, but somebody can go look it up. The performance has been very good. And the reason it's been very right. good is that we're, we're, we're targeting a certain lower risk targeted rate of return. And so I tell people, you're trying to reach an actuarial goal. The market is going to become more volatile as the Fed is normalizing rates. Passive indexes, which have worked, and so have ETFs, they may not necessarily work with the same success over the next five years, so diversify a little bit into products like ours. Real quick, does Donald Trump give you autonomy to come up with your own economic plans, or does he weigh in? No, there's no question he weighs in. I mean, he, you see, this is the thing that I think that has been distorted through the media prism and probably also from his stump campaigning. He is a very thoughtful, very methodical guy. He is a doer with a big, long list on a on a yellow pad. Anthony Scaramucci, thank you so much for being with us. Anthony Scaramucci, founder of Skybridge Capital and author of his third book, Hopping Over the Rabbit Hole. Thanks for being with us. This is Bloomberg. And to learn more about Apple, we have brought in none other than the expert, Shira Ovide, columnist covering technology of Bloomberg Gadfly, which just means that fast commentary section. Boy, you know, it's great to have you here. Thank My you. pleasure. Thank you. And I just want to point out that you're uh, followable on Twitter uh, at uh, Shira Ovide. Yes. That's uh, O-V-I-D-E. Well done. Thank See? you. Um, Apple, you got this column out fast. What's been going on? I mean, it, it, you're, That's you the whole point, commentary, Pam. Pam. No, no, no. But it, the reason I say that is, be, is because you got it out fast, but you make a long-term point in, in the piece. Maybe just to describe that, expand on that. So it's really two points. The basic message is, look, the, the party's over for Apple. So on the one hand, you have a company that was this incredible growth story for f- basically 15 years. Revenue increased annually for 15 years. And this was the first time since 2001 that fiscal year revenue declined for Apple. And looking ahead, it doesn't look that much better. We have a company that, I mean, generates incredible profits, by far the most profitable company in the world. But the basis of Apple has been, this is a company with incredible profits and incredible growth, and incredible growth is no longer on the horizon. So the big question is, what's next for Apple? And they don't have an immediate answer, right? The iPhone is now 60% of their annual sales or so. And there really isn't a product, again, on the near-term horizon to replace 
the incredible uh, sales and profit growth that the iPhone has generated. Well, so let's say that this is the end of the party. Sorry, Apple, it's over. You've gotten to your peak uh, size. What does that mean for investors in the stock? I mean, they're still throwing off so much cash. I mean, they still have this fortress of money on their balance sheet. Right. And that's always been the bull case on Apple, that even during its most heady growth period, it still looks like an incredibly cheap stock. I believe it's trading right now, or at least before today, at something like 13 times next 12-month revenue. And for a tech stock, uh, compared to something like Google or Facebook, that's incredibly inexpensive. So, if you believe um, that this profit machine at least continues for the foreseeable future, and I do, then that's a reason to back the stock. But again, if you are an investor in Apple and you want incredible growth and incredible profits, um, the the growth picture is probably not part of the story anymore. But how many people really predicted that Apple would reach to these heights, let's say, 20 years ago? It's a good point. I, I, I don't think anyone did. I mean, this was a company that almost died. Right. So right. And has is... been on this incredible march, the likes of which we've probably never seen in the corporate world. Well, and the reason I say that is because I know that the new iPhone 7 uh, does not have, let's say, an extension, uh, a plug for earphones. It does not have an earphone plug. That's right? right. So that plug. may change. You don't know what the third and fourth iteration is specifically since they have the Beats uh, acquisition. You don't know what the technology is going to evolve into in order to best the competition. And right now, the competition is all outside the United States. So if you want a U.S. company and you believe that cell phones are going to continue to be in demand, what else is there? Yeah, that's that's fair. It's You're right. It's not as though Apple's smartphone competitors are in much better shape, particularly Samsung, with this um, problem with their exploding smartphones. The issue is <laughs> that the problem. smartphone industry is not growing anymore worldwide, and um, Apple can't change that probably on its own. So the, the, to me, the most telling moment on the earnings call, the Apple earnings call last night, was one of the veteran Apple analysts asked Tim Cook, what's the next big thing for Apple beyond the iPhone? The Apple Watch is not a blockbuster hit quite yet. Apple Music is not a blockbuster hit quite yet. You're not generating a lot of money from Apple Pay. There's nothing on the current product lineup that is the next growth driver. So do you have a vision of what that growth driver is for the next generation of Apple? And Tim Cook answered, I think, rather grumpily that they have the best product pipeline they've ever had, which is what Apple CEOs always say from the beginning of time. And he also said, we're not going to tell you what it is, basically. It's the sort of trust us message from Tim Cook. The problem is the trust us message from Apple doesn't work anymore. Just real quick, did they mention Samsung and how much uh, market share they could end up getting? They got asked that question and they punted. I think it's clear they're not going to pick up huge sales from Samsung. Shira Oviday, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.